This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford Beati Immaculati Part 1, 5 Those words gave me the greatest relief that I have ever had in my life. They told me, I think, almost more than I have ever gathered at any one moment about myself. I don't think that before that day I had ever wanted anything very much except Florence, I have, of course, had appetites, impatiences. Why, sometimes at a table d'hote, when there would be, say, caviar handed round, I have been absolutely full of impatience for the fear that when the dish came to me, there should not be a satisfying portion left over by the other guests. I have been exceedingly impatient at missing trains. The Belgian State Railway has a trick of letting the French trains miss their connections at Brussels. That has always infuriated me. I have written about it letters to the Times that the Times never printed. Those that I wrote to the Paris edition of the New York Herald were always printed, but they never seemed to satisfy me when I saw them. Well, that was a sort of frenzy with me. It was a frenzy that now I can hardly realize. I can understand it intellectually. You see, in those days I was interested in people with hearts. There was Florence. There was Edward Ashburnham, or perhaps it was Leonora that I was more interested in. I don't mean in the way of love, but, you see, we were both of the same profession, at any rate as I saw it, and the profession was that of keeping heart patients alive. You have no idea how engrossing such a profession may become. Just as the blacksmith says, By hammer in hand all art doth stand, just as the baker thinks that all the solar system revolves around his morning delivery of rolls, as the postmaster-general believes that he alone is the preserver of society, and surely, surely these delusions are necessary to keep us going, so did I, and, as I believed Leonora, imagine that the whole world ought to be arranged so as to ensure the keeping alive of heart patients. You have no idea how engrossing such a profession may become, how imbecile, in view of that engrossment appear the ways of princes, of republics, of municipalities, a rough bit of road beneath the motor tires, a couple of succeeding thank you marms with their quick jolts would be enough to set me grumbling to Leonora against the prince, or the grand duke, or the free city, through whose territory we might be passing. I would grumble like a stockbroker whose conversations over the telephone are incommoded by the ringing of bells from a city church. I would talk about medieval survivals, about the taxes being surely high enough. The point, by the way, about the missing of the connections of the Calais boat trains at Brussels was that the shortest possible sea journey is frequently of great importance to sufferers from the heart. Now, on the continent, there are two special heart-cure places, Nauheim and Spa, and to reach both of these baths from England, if in order to ensure a short sea passage you come by Calais, you have to make a connection at Brussels. 
and the Belgian train never waits by so much a shade of a second for the one coming from Calais or from Paris. And even if the French trains are just on time, you have to run. Imagine a heart patient running along the unfamiliar ways of the Brussels station and to scramble up the high steps of the moving train. Or if you miss the connection, you have to wait five or six hours. I used to keep awake whole nights cursing that abuse. My wife used to run. She never, in whatever else she may have misled me, tried to give me the impression that she was not a gallant soul. But once in the German Express, she would lean back with one hand to her side and her eyes closed. Well, she was a good actress, and I would be in hell. In hell, I tell you. For in Florence I had at once a wife and an unattained mistress. That is what it comes to. And in the retaining of her in this world I had my occupation, my career, my ambition. It is not often that these things are united in one body. Leonora was a good actress, too. By Jove, she was good. I tell you, she would listen to me by the hour evolving my plans for a shock-proof world. It is true that at times I used to notice about her face an air of inattention, as if she were listening, a mother, to the child at her knee, or as if, precisely, I were myself the patient. You understand that there was nothing the matter with Edward Ashburnham's heart, that he had thrown up his commission and had left India and come half the world over in order to follow a woman who had really had a heart to Nauheim. That was the sort of sentimental ass he was. For you understand, too, that they needed to live in India, to economize, to let the house at Branshaw Teleraw. Of course, at that date, I had never heard of the Kilsite case. Ashburnham had, you know, kissed a servant girl in a railway train, and it was only the grace of God, the prompt functioning of the communication cord, and the ready sympathy of what I believe you call the Hampshire bench that kept the poor devil out of Winchester jail for years and years. I had never heard of that case until the final stages of Leonora's revelations. But just think of that poor wretch. I, who have surely the right, beg you to think of that poor wretch. Is it possible that such a luckless devil should be so tormented by blind and inscrutable destiny? For there is no other way to think of it. None. I have the right to say it. Since for years he was my wife's lover, since he killed her, since he broke up all the pleasantness that there was in my life, there is no priest that has the right to tell me that I must not ask pity for him, from you, silent listener, beyond the hearthstone, from the world, or from the God who created him in those desires, those madnesses. Of course I should not hear of that Kilsite case. I knew none of their friends. They were for me just good people, fortunate people with broad and sunny acres in a southern country, just good people. By heavens, I sometimes think that it would have been better for him, poor dear, if the case had been such as one that I must needs have heard of it. Such a one as maids and couriers and other cur guests whisper about for years after, until gradually it dies away in the pity that there is knocking about here and there in the world. Supposing he had spent his seven years in Winchester jail, or whatever it is that inscrutable and blind justice allots to you for following your natural but ill-timed inclinations, there would have arrived a stage when nodding gossip on that Cursal terrace would have said, poor fellow, thinking of his ruined career. He would have been the fine soldier with his back now bent, 
Better for him, poor devil, if his back had been prematurely bent. Why, it would have been a thousand times better. For, of course, the Kilsite case, which came at the very beginning of his finding Leonora cold and unsympathetic, gave him a nasty jar. He left servants alone after that. It turned him, naturally, all the more loose amongst women of his own class. Why, Leonora told me that Mrs. Maiden, the woman he followed from Burma to Nauheim, assured her he awakened her attention by swearing that when he kissed the servant in the train he was driven to it, I dare say he was driven to it, by the mad passion to find an ultimately satisfying woman. I dare say he was sincere enough. Heaven help me, I dare say he was sincere enough in his love for Mrs. Maiden. She was a nice little thing, a dear little dark woman with long lashes, of whom Florence grew quite fond. She had a lisp and a happy smile. We saw plenty of her for the first month of our acquaintance. Then she died quite quietly of heart trouble. But you know, poor little Miss Maiden, she was so gentle, so young. She cannot have been more than twenty-three, and she had a boy husband out in Chitral, not more than twenty-four, I believe. Such young things ought to have been left alone. Of course, Ashburnham could not leave her alone. I do not believe that he could. Why, even I, at this distance of time, am aware that I am a little in love with her memory. I can't help smiling when I think suddenly of her, as if you might at the thought of something wrapped carefully in lavender in some drawer and some old house that you had long left. She was so... so submissive. Why, even to me she had the air of being submissive. To me, that not the youngest child will ever pay heed to. Yes, this is the saddest story. No, I cannot help wishing that Florence had left her alone, with her playing with adultery. I suppose it was, though she was such a child that one has the impression that she would hardly have known how to spell such a word. No, it was just submissiveness to the importunities, to the tempestuous forces that pushed that miserable fellow on to ruin and I do not suppose that Florence really made much difference. If it had not been for her that Ashburnham left his allegiance for Mrs. Maiden, then it would have been some other woman. But still I do not know. Perhaps the poor young thing would have died. She was bound to die anyway, quite soon. But she would have died without having to soak her noonday pillow with tears, whilst Florence below the window talked to Captain Ashburnham about the Constitution of the United States. Yes, it would have left a better taste in the mouth if Florence had let her die in peace. Leonora behaved better, in a sense. She just boxed Miss Maiden's ears. Yes, she hit her. In an uncontrollable access of rage, a hard blow on the side of the cheek in the corridor of the hotel outside Edward's room. It was that, you know, that accounted for the sudden, odd intimacy that sprang up between Florence and Mrs. Ashburnham. Because it was, of course, an odd intimacy. If you look at it from the outside, nothing could have been more unlikely than that Leonora, who was the proudest creature on God's earth, would have struck up an acquaintanceship with two casual Yankees whom she could not have really regarded as being much more than a carpet beneath her feet. You may ask what she had to be proud of. Well, she was a poess married to an Ashburnham. I suppose that gave her the right to despise casual Americans as long as she did it unostentatiously. I don't know what anyone has to be proud of. She might have taken pride in her patience, 
in her keeping her husband out of the bankruptcy court. Perhaps she did. At any rate, that was how Florence got to know her. She came round a screen at the corner of the hotel corridor, and found Leonora, with the gold key that hung from her wrist, caught in Miss Mydon's hair just before dinner. There was not a single word spoken. Little Miss Mydon was very pale, with a red mark down her left cheek, and the key would not come out of her black hair. It was Florence who had to disentangle it, for Leonora was in such a state that she could not have brought herself to touch Miss Mydon without growing sick, and there was not a word spoken. You see, under those four eyes, her own and Miss Mydon's, Leonora could just let herself go as far as to box Miss Mydon's ear. But the moment a stranger came along, she pulled herself wonderfully up. She was at first silent, and then, the moment the key was disengaged by Florence, she was in a state to say, So awkward of me. I was just trying to put the comb straight in Miss Mydon's hair. Miss Mydon, however, was not a poet married to an Ashburnham. She was a poor little O'Flaherty, whose husband was a boy of country parsonage origin, so there was no mistaking the sob she let go as she went desolately away along the corridor. But Leonora was still going to play up. She opened the door of Ashburnham's room quite ostentatiously, so that Florence should hear her address Edward in terms of intimacy and liking. Edward, she called, but there was no Edward there. You understand that there was no Edward there. It was then, for the only time of her career, that Leonora really compromised herself. She exclaimed, How frightful! Poor little Maisie! She caught herself up at that, but, of course, it was too late. It was a queer sort of affair. I want to do Leonora every justice. I love her very dearly, for one thing, and in this matter, which was certainly the ruin of my small household cockle-shell, she certainly tripped up. I do not believe, and Leonora herself does not believe, that poor little Maisie Maiden was ever Edward's mistress. Her heart was really so bad that she would have succumbed to anything like an impassioned embrace. That is the plain English of it, and I suppose plain English is best. She was really what the other two, for reasons of their own, just pretended to be. Queer, isn't it? like one of those sinister jokes that Providence plays upon one. Add to this that I do not suppose that Leonora would much have minded, at any other moment, if Miss Mydon had been her husband's mistress. It might have been a relief from Edward's sentimental gurglings over the lady and from the lady's submissive acceptance of those sounds. No, she would not have minded. But in boxing Miss Mydon's ears, Leonora was just striking in the face of an intolerable universe— for that afternoon she had had a frightfully painful scene with Edward. As far as his letters went, she claimed the right to open them when she chose. She arrogated to herself the right because Edward's affairs were in such a frightful state, and he lied so about them that she claimed the privilege of having his secrets at her disposal. There was not, indeed, any other way, for the poor fool was too ashamed of his lapses ever to make a clean breast of anything. She had to drag these things out of him. It must have been a pretty elevating job for her. But that afternoon, Edward being on his bed for the hour and a half prescribed by the Kerr authorities, she had opened a letter that she took to come from a Colonel Harvey. They were going to stay with him in Linlithgowshire for the month of September, and she did not know whether the date fixed would be the 11th or the 18th. The address on this letter was, in handwriting, 
as like Colonel Harvey's as one blade of corn is like another, so she had at the moment no idea of spying on him. But she certainly was, for she discovered that Edward Ashburnham was paying a blackmailer of whom she had never heard something like three hundred pounds a year. It was a devil of a blow. It was like death, for she imagined that by that time she had really got to the bottom of her husband's liabilities. You see, they were pretty heavy. What had really smashed them up had been a perfectly commonplace affair at Monte Carlo, an affair with a cosmopolitan harpy who passed for the mistress of a Russian grand duke. She extracted a twenty-thousand-pound pearl tiara from him as the price of her favors for a week or so. It would have pipped him a good deal to have found so much, and he was not in the ordinary way a gambler. He might indeed just have found the twenty thousand, and the not slight charges of a week at a hotel with a fair creature. He must have been worth at that date five hundred thousand dollars and a little over. Well, he must needs go to the tables and lose forty thousand pounds, forty thousand solid pounds borrowed from sharks. And even after that he must, it was an imperative passion, enjoy the favors of the lady. He got them, of course, when it was a matter of solid bargaining, for far less than twenty thousand as he might, no doubt, have done from the first. I dare say ten thousand dollars covered the bill. Anyhow, there was a pretty solid hole in a fortune of a hundred thousand pounds or so, and Leonora had to fix things up. He would have run from moneylender to moneylender. And that was quite in the early days of her discovery of his infidelities, if you like to call them infidelities. And she discovered that from public sources. God knows what would have happened if she had not discovered it from public sources. I suppose he would have concealed it from her until they were penniless. But she was able, by the grace of God, to get hold of the actual lenders of the money, to learn the exact sums that were needed. And she went off to England. Yes, she went right off to England to her attorney and his while he was still in the arms of his Circe at Antebbe, to which place they had retired. He got sick of the lady quite quickly, but not before Leonora had such lessons in the art of business from her attorney that she had her plan as clearly drawn up as was ever that of General Trochu for keeping the Prussians out of Paris in 1870. It was as about as effectual at first, or so it seemed so. That would have been, you know, in 1895, about nine years before the date of which I am talking the date of Florence's getting her hold over Leonora. But that was what it amounted to. Well, Mrs. Ashburnham had simply forced Edward to settle all his property upon her. She could force him to do anything, in his clumsy, good-natured, inarticulate way. He was as frightened of her as of the devil, and he admired her enormously, and he was fond of her as any man could be of any woman. She took advantage of her to treat him as if he had been a person whose estates are being managed by the court of bankruptcy. I suppose it was the best thing for him. Anyhow, she had no end of a job for the first three years or so. Unexpected liabilities kept on cropping up, and that afflicted fool did not make it any easier. You see, along with the passion of the chase, went a frame of mind that made him be extraordinarily ashamed of himself. You may not believe it, but he really had such a sort of respect for the chastity of Leonora's imagination that he hated. He was positively revolted at the thought that she would know that the sort of thing that he did existed in the world. So he would stick out in an agitated way against the accusations of ever having done anything. He wanted to preserve the virginity of his wife's thoughts. He told me that himself during the long walks we had at the last, while the girl was on the way to Brindisi. 
So, of course, for those three years or so, Leonora had many agitations, and it was then that they really quarreled. Yes, they quarreled bitterly. That seems rather extravagant. You might have thought that Leonora would be just calmly loathing and he lachrymosely contrite, but that was not it a bit. Along with Edward's passion and his shame for them went the violent conviction of the duties of his station, a conviction that was quite unreasonably expensive. I trust I have not, in talking of his liabilities, given the impression that poor Edward was a promiscuous libertine. He was not. He was a sentimentalist. The servant girl in the Killside case had been pretty, but mournful of appearance. I think that when he kissed her, he had desired rather to comfort her. And if she had succeeded to his blandishments, I dare say he would have set her up in a little house in Portsmouth or Winchester, and would have been faithful to her for four or five years. He was quite capable of that. No, the only two of his affairs of the heart that cost him money were that of the Grand Duke's mistress, and that which was the subject of the blackmailing letter that Leonora opened. That had been quite a passionate affair with quite a nice woman. It had succeeded the one with the Grand Ducal lady. The lady was the wife of a brother officer, and Leonora had known all about the passion, which had been quite a real passion, and had lasted for several years. You see, poor Edward's passions were quite logical in their progression upwards. They began with a servant, went on to a courtesan, and then to a quite nice woman, very unsuitably mated. For she had quite a nasty husband, who, by means of letters and things, went on blackmailing poor Edward to the name of three or four hundred a year, with threats of the divorce court. And after this lady came Maisie Maiden, and after poor Maisie, only one more affair, and then the real passion of his life. His marriage with Leonora had been arranged by his parents, and although he always admired her immensely, he had hardly ever pretended to be much more than tender to her, though he desperately needed her moral support, too. But his really trying liabilities were mostly in the nature of generosities proper to his station. He was, according to Leonora, always remitting his tenants' rents, and giving the tenants to understand that their reduction would be permanent. He was always redeeming drunkards who came before his magisterial bench. He was always trying to put prostitutes into respectable places, and he was a perfect maniac about children. I don't know how many ill-used people he did not pick up and provide with careers. Leonora has told me, but I dare say she exaggerated, that the figure seemed so preposterous that I will not put it down. All these things and the continuance of them seemed to him to be his duty along with impossible subscriptions to hospitals and Boy Scouts, and to provide prizes at cattle shows and anti-vivisection societies. Well, Leonora saw to it that most of these things were not continued. They could not possibly keep up Branshaw Manor at that rate after the money had gone to the Grand Duke's mistress. She put the rents back at their old figures, discharged the drunkards from their homes, and sent all the societies notice that they were to expect no more subscriptions. To the children she was more tender. Nearly all of them she supported until the age of apprenticeship or domestic service. You see, she was childless herself, and she considered herself to be to blame. She had come of a penniless branch of the Poes family, and they had forced upon her poor dear Edward without making the stipulation that the children should be brought up as Catholics. And that, of course, was spiritual death to Leonora. I have given you a wrong impression if I have not made you see that Leonora was a woman of a strong, cold conscience like all English Catholics. I cannot myself help disliking this religion. 
there is always at the bottom of my mind, in spite of Leonora, the feeling of shuddering at the scarlet woman that filtered in upon me in the tranquillity of the little old friend's meeting-house in Arch Street, Philadelphia. So I do set down a good deal of Leonora's mismanagement of poor dear Edward's case to the peculiarly English form of her religion. Because, of course, the only thing to have done for Edward would have been to let him sink down until he became a tramp of gentlemanly address, having, maybe, chance love affairs upon the highways. He would have done so much less harm. He would have been much less agonized, too. At any rate, he would have had fewer chances of ruining and of remorse, for Edward was great at remorse. But Leonora's English Catholic conscience, her rigid principles, her coldness, even her very patience were... I cannot help thinking all wrong in this special case. She quite seriously and naively imagined that the Church of Rome disapproves of divorce. She quite seriously and naively believed that her Church would be such a monstrous and imbecile institution as to expect her to take on the impossible job of making Edward Ashburnham a faithful husband. She had, as the English would say, the nonconformist temperament. In the United States of North America, we call it the New England conscience. For, of course, that frame of mind had been driven in on the English Catholics. The centuries that they had gone through, centuries of blind and malignant oppression, of ostracism from public employment, of being, as it were, a small beleaguered garrison in a hostile country, and therefore having to act with great formality, all these things have combined to perform that conjuring trick. And I suppose that papists in England were even technically nonconformists. Continental Papists are a dirty, jovial, and unscrupulous crew. But that, at least, lets them be opportunists. They would have fixed poor dear Edward up all right. Forgive my writing of these monstrous things in this frivolous manner. If I did not, I should break down and cry. In Milan, say, or in Paris, Leonora would have had her marriage dissolved in six months for two hundred dollars paid in the right quarter, and Edward would have drifted about until he became a tramp of the kind I have suggested. Or he would have married a barmaid who would have made him such frightful scenes in public places and would so have torn out his moustache and left visible signs upon his face that he would have been faithful to her for the rest of his days. That was what he wanted to redeem him. For along with his passions and his shames, there went the dread of scenes in public places, of outcry, of excited physical violence, of publicity, in short, Yes, the barmaid would have cured him, and it would have been all the better if she drank. He would have been kept busy looking after her. I know I am right in this. I know it because of the Kilsite case. You see, the servant girl that he then kissed was nurse in the family of the nonconformist head of the county, whatever that post may be called, and that gentleman was so determined to ruin Edward, who was the chairman of the Tory caucus, or whatever it is, that the poor dear sufferer had the very devil of a time. They asked questions about it in the House of Commons. They tried to get the Hampshire magistrates degraded. They suggested to the War Ministry that Edward was not the proper person to hold the King's commission. Yes, he got it hot and strong. The result you have heard. He was completely cured of philandering amongst the lower classes. And that seemed a real blessing to Leonora. It did not revolt her so much to be connected... It is a sort of connection with people like Mrs. Maiden, instead of with a little kitchen-maid. In a dim sort of way, Leonora was almost contented when she arrived at Nauheim that evening. 
She had got things nearly straight by the long years of scraping in little stations like Chitral and Burma, stations where living is cheap in comparison with the life of a county magistrate, and where, moreover, liaisons of one sort or another are normal and inexpensive, too. So that when Miss Maiden came along, and the Maiden affair might have caused trouble out there because of the youth of the husband, Leonora had just resigned herself to coming home, with pushing and scraping and with letting Branshaw Tellera, and with selling a picture and a relic of Charles I or so, she had got, and poor dear, she had never really had a decent dress to her back in all those years and years, she had got, as she imagined, her poor dear husband back into much the same financial position as had been his before the mistress of the Grand Duke had happened along, and of course Edward himself had helped her a little on the financial side. He was a fellow that many men liked. He was so presentable and quite ready to lend you his cigar-puncher, that sort of thing. So every now and then some financier whom he met about would give him some good, sound, profitable tip, and Leonora was never afraid of a bit of gamble. English papists seldom are, and I do not know why. So nearly all her investments turned up trumps, and Edward was really in fit case to reopen Branshaw Manor, and once more to assume his position in the county. Thus Leonora had accepted Maisie Maiden almost with resignation, almost with a sigh of relief. She really liked the poor child. She had to like somebody. And at any rate she felt she could trust Maisie. She could trust her not to rook Edward for several thousand a week, for Maisie had refused to accept so much as a trinket ring from him. It is true that Edward gurgled and raved about the girl in a way that she had never quite experienced, but that too was almost a relief. I think she would have really welcomed it if he could have come across the love of his life. It would have given her a rest. And there could not have been anyone better than poor little Mrs. Maiden. She was so ill she could not want to be taken on expensive jaunts. It was Leonora herself who paid Maisie's expenses to Norheim. She handed over the money to the boy husband, for Maisie would never have allowed it. But the husband was in agonies of fear, poor devil. I fancy that, on the voyage from India, Leonora was as happy as ever she had been in her life. Edward was wrapped up completely in his girl. He was almost like a father with a child, trotting about with rugs and physic and things from deck to deck. He behaved, however, with great circumspection, so that nothing leaked through to the other passengers. And Leonora had almost attained to the attitude of a mother toward Mrs. Maiden. So it had looked very well, the benevolent, wealthy couple of good people, acting as saviors to the poor, dark-eyed, dying young thing. And that attitude of Leonora's toward Mrs. Maiden no doubt partly accounted for the smack in the face. She was hitting a naughty child who had been stealing chocolates at an inopportune moment. It was certainly an inopportune moment. For with the opening of that blackmailing letter from that injured brother officer, all the old terrors had redescended upon Leonora. Her road had again seemed to stretch out endless, she imagined that there might be hundreds and hundreds of such things that Edward was concealing from her, that they might necessitate more mortgaging, more pawnings of bracelets, more and always more horrors. She had spent an excruciating afternoon. The matter was one of a divorce case, of course, and she wanted to avoid publicity as much as Edward did, so that she saw the necessity of continuing the payments. And she did not so much mind that. They could find three hundred a year. But it was the horror of there being more such obligations. She had had no conversation with Edward for many years. None that went beyond the mere arrangements for taking trains or engaging servants. 
But that afternoon she had to let him have it, and he had been just the same as ever. It was like opening a book after a decade to find the words the same. He had the same motives. He had not wished to tell her about the case, because he had not wished to sully her mind with the idea that there was such a thing as a brother officer who could be a blackmailer, and he had wanted to protect the credit of his old light of love. That lady was certainly not concerned with her husband, and he swore and swore and swore that there was nothing else in the world against him. She did not believe him. He had done it once too often, and she was wrong for the first time, so that he acted a rather creditable part in the matter, for he went right straight out to the post office and spent several hours encoding a telegram to his solicitor, bidding that hard-headed man to threaten to take out at once a warrant against the fellow who was on his track. He said afterwards that it was a bit too thick on old Leonora to be ballyragged any more. That was really the last of his outstanding accounts, and he was ready to take his personal chance of the divorce court if the blackmailer turned nasty. He would face it out. The publicity, the papers, the whole bally show. Those were his simple words. He had made, however, the mistake of not telling Leonora where he was going, so that having seen him go into his room to fetch the code for the telegram, and seeing, two hours later, Maisie Maiden come out of his room, Leonora imagined that the two hours she had spent in silent agony, Edward had spent with Maisie Maiden in his arms. That seemed to her to be too much. As a matter of fact, Maisie's being in Edward's room had been the result partly of poverty, partly of pride, partly of sheer innocence. She could not, in the first place, afford a maid. She refrained as much as possible from sending the hotel servants on errand, since every penny was of importance to her, and she feared to have to pay high tips at the end of her stay. Edward had lent her one of his fascinating cases, containing fifteen different sizes of scissors, and having seen from her window his departure for the post office, she had taken the opportunity of returning the case. She could not see why she should not, though she felt a certain remorse at the thought that she had kissed the pillows of his bed. That was the way it took her. But Leonora could see that, without the shadow of a doubt, the incident gave Florence a hold over her. It let Florence into things, and Florence was the only created being who had any idea that the Ashburnhams were not just good people with nothing to their tails. She determined at once not so much to give Florence the privilege of her intimacy, which would have been the payment of a kind of blackmail, as to keep Florence under observation until she could have demonstrated to Florence that she was not in the least jealous of poor Maisie, so that was why she had entered the dining-room arm in arm with my wife, and why she had so markedly planted herself at our table. She never left us, indeed, for a minute that night, except just to run up to Miss Maiden's room to beg her pardon, and to beg her also to let Edward to take her very markedly out into the gardens that night. She said herself, when Miss Maiden came rather wistfully down into the lounge when we were all sitting, "'Now, Edward, get up and take Miss Mysie to the casino.' I want Mrs. Dowell to tell me all about the families in Connecticut who came from Fordenbridge. For it had been discovered that Florence came of a line that had actually owned Branshaw Teleroff for two centuries before the Ashburnhams came there. And there she sat with me in that hall, long after Florence had gone to bed, so that I might witness her gay reception of that pair. She could play up. And that enables me to fix exactly the day of our going to the town of M. For it was the very day poor Miss Maiden died. We found her dead when we got back. 
pretty awful, that, when you come to figure out what it all means. At any rate, the measure of my relief when Leonora said that she was an Irish Catholic gives you the measure of my affection for that couple. It was an affection so intense that even to this day I cannot think of Edward without sighing. I do not believe that I could have gone on any more with them. I was getting too tired, and I verily believe, too, if my suspicion that Leonora was jealous of Florence had been the reason she gave for her outburst, I should have turned upon Florence with the maddest kind of rage. Jealousy would have been incurable. But Florence's mere silly jibes at the Irish and at the Catholics could be apologized out of existence, and that I appeared to fix up in two minutes or so. She looked at me for a long time rather fixedly and queerly while I was doing it, and at last I worked myself up to saying, Do accept the situation. I confess that I do not like your religion, but I like you so intensely. I don't mind saying that I have never had anyone to really be fond of, and I do not believe that anyone has ever been fond of me as I believe you really to be. Oh, I'm fond of you, she said, fond enough to say that I wish every man was like you, but there are others to be considered. She was thinking, as a matter of fact, of poor Maisie. She picked a little piece of pellitory out of the breast-high wall in front of us. She chafed it for a long minute between her finger and thumb, then she threw it over the coping. Oh, I accept the situation, she said at last, if you can. End Part 1, 5 of The Good Soldier Recording by Richard Grove